Um, now we have a second year. So uh, jumping from, from that to uh, the topic, Kavad Abriyot as a factor in halachic decision-making. Uh, rabbi Ezra Labaton will present on this. He is the rabbi of congregation Magen David. Is that how it's pronounced? Uh, Magen David? Magen David? Okay. I, I think in Brooklyn they call it Magen David. Uh, Magen David of West Deal, New Jersey for the past 18 years. He also received his smicha from Yeshiva University Ritz and he has just completed or handed in his dissertation to Brandeis University. So, uh, thank you. Welcome. I'd like to begin by noting that to some degree, that what you're about to hear is a work in progress. All the implications of that which I have to say have not yet been fully worked out. Perhaps you can help me in working out some of the details, some of the implications of the thesis that I'm about to present. One can c classify Jewish law, halakha, in a number of different fashions. Most of us are very familiar with some of these classifications. Certainly we all know that one can classify Jewish law into positive and negative mitzvot. Clear, simple, obvious. As well, of course, one can classify Jewish law, halakha, into mitzvot bin adam laws that deal with a human being and his fellow man, as well as mitzvot bin adam which are laws that have to do between man and God. Of course, the Rambam in Morena Bukhim classifies Jewish law into 14 separate classifications. And as well, Rav Hirsch has a kind of six-fold system of classification. Of course, we all agree that all of these approaches are valid. Our starting point would be Parashat Mishpatim, which is a good ground for testing, because Parashat Mishpatim has more halachot, more laws than any other parashat except for Parashat Ki And as we go through Parashat Mishpatim, of course we're going to find mitzvot ben adam lamakom, mitzvot that are characteristic of the relationship between man and God. And as well, we're going to find mitzvot ben adam mitzvot. If I use any terms that you're not familiar with, please tell me to stop and explain. Such as the mitzvot of arba shomrim, four categories of people that safeguard one of your objects. All of these are laws that are generally classified as mitzvot ben adam lahavero. But I'm not completely happy with this very simple classification, because as we study Torah literature, let's go beyond Pasha Mishpatim for a moment, we find that there are other laws, other halachot, that seem to embody what I would call core values of Judaism or of Torah mitzvot. Can anybody here give me one almost obvious example of a halacha that embodies a core value of Judaism? Good. The rabbi has a good sense. The rabbi said, love your neighbor yourself, that seems to embody a core value. Now, let's raise the question. Does Arba Shomrim, or Shoshin Agah, or Ama Ivriya, or Ebed Ivri, do they embody core values? Or let's go a step further, and take note that there are other statements made in the Torah itself that are clearly core statements. For example, Kiddushim to you. Vayikra Yuteh tells me that you have an obligation of being holy. Kiddushim to you. 
There's all kinds of discussions, Rashi, Ramban, so what that really means. Or for example, you have a halakha, Pashat Aykev, Pashat Eitz, mentioned twice as well. Do that which is good and right in the eyes of God. Harambam Sefer Mitzvot makes the point that these all-embracing statements are not in fact to be counted as part of the 613 commandments, rather they're really core values that percolate throughout all of Torah and Mitzvot. I'd like to add to those two rather obvious examples the very famous Sifre, Sifra, on the Pasuk the Rabbi had quoted, here you have a major argument between Rabbi Akiva and Ben Azai as to what is the Klagadol Ba Torah, what is the great principle of Torah. They're, they're using that term. Hachmea Mishnah talking about this notion. What is Klagadol Ba Torah? What is the great principle of Torah? Rabbi Akiva says, loving your neighbor, friend, as yourself is a Klagadol, a great principle of Torah. Ben Azai has a problem with that, says, no, that's not Klal Gadol Torah, but rather a greater Klal Gadol, a greater principle would be Perek Heav Bereshit, Pasuk Aleph, Zeh Sev Todot HaAdam, this is the story of mankind, God created man in his image, the image of God created him, reflecting, of course, Bereshit Aleph Pasuk Kavam Kav Zayin. The notion that man is man, woman, sorry, Zechal Kabbalah Otam, that both are created with Selim Elohim, a divine image, Zechal Kabbalah Otam, is Klagadol Batorah. So here we have a notion that within Torah itself, you have certain statements that are counted by some as mitzvot, some not as mitzvot, that are core values that percolate, one might say perhaps, through all of halacha. And that's my real question. Does Arba Shomrim, does Shoshargah, reflect a core value or not? Now, why is it important for me to identify these laws? Because I want to see whether or not there are certain core values that are going to influence, impact upon my psak halacha. Let's try to take some examples of clear halachot that reflect these core values. Pashat Mishpatim. Im habot habot You're going to loan somebody some money. You have a right to collect collateral. You have a right to take collateral. And I'm going to loan this person money, and I'm going to take his night clothes. He only has day clothes and night clothes and nothing else. I am going to take, I have a right to take his night clothes. When night comes, however, what? I am obligated to return his night clothes. Now this formation is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Why? Because then we have a motive clause. Torah then tells you, that's the covering for his skin. Now a rhetorical question. Take note. Where does the Torah in fact ask rhetorical questions within its halakha? Because it has a rhetorical question, I am saying this is, one second please, this is a critically important halakha that's going to reflect the core value. But how is he going to sleep? He'll be cold. When he calls out to me, I, God, will listen. Why? Because I am compassionate. And by contrast, you who took his night clothes and didn't return it are not compassionate. So here we have an extraordinary halakha that is expressing a fundamental value of Torah legislation and in fact raising the question. I have an absolute right to his night clothes. He took my money. I have a right to his clothes. I want to know now why do I have to return his night clothes? 
Sorry? No, because he'll be cold. He'll be cold. He's going to call out in his cold. We act like life. He's cold. And he won't, no, he cannot wear it. That's inappropriate. It's a good point. The answer to my question is because he's a dignified human being, though dirt poor, it's not right for a man to use his dirty day clothes at night. He has to wash his day clothes at night and let them out to dry so he can use them the next day. It would be de-selamizing. That will not be found in your Webster's. Term that I use. It will be de-selamizing or de-dignifying as a human being for him to do with the rabbi's suggestion, which is either wear your night clothes, your day clothes at night, or no clothes. Inappropriate. So this halakha over here seems to reflect a core value of Tzedem Because he is a divine imaged person, a human being, male or female, then you have an obligation to go beyond your rights of having and taking collateral and giving back at night his night clothes and take his day clothes perhaps and the next day he'll give you back his night clothes. He's a human being. Similarly, we have an interesting halakha as well, book of Devarim. Someone owes you money. Now, do you have a right to the collateral? Yes, you have a right to collateral. No problem with that. How Torah tells me, Stand outside, and the man that you are now going to take that collateral from him, he will bring out this collateral outside to you. Question, why do I have to wait outside to get my rightfully deserved collateral? Because even though the same point is made, even though this person is dirt poor, he has the right to have his home as his castle, his palace. He's a tzelim elokim, he's a divine image. And you, by barging in to take what's rightfully yours, namely the collateral, would be a violation of his dignity, of his tzelim elokim. And therefore, you must wait outside. So here as well, we see that this would seem to be an kor halacha reflecting Tzelem Elohim, divine image. Similarly, another example. Another interesting halacha in Kitetzeh, wherein I see a wallet on the floor, right by his foot. There's a nice wallet. Everybody sees it, and there's loads of money coming. Don't step up. Stepped on it. Thank you. No, 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 leave it there. Leave it there. Leave it there. You're missing my whole point. Does he have the right to walk by and not pick up the wallet that I had dropped when I entered the room? Does he have to pick it up and give it to me? He's a nice person. Not only because he came here, but because he wanted to give back the wallet. Does he have to wear mitzvah ase or not? So obviously, Turan Devarim tells us, yes, he has an absolute obligation of picking up that wallet and giving it back to me. And let's say he wore a wallet. Let's say it was a cow. Guess what? Take the cow home. Take care of the cow till you track me down. Hashavat Avedah. You must also that he loses and you find Look at that those three words that adds over here. You cannot hide yourself from it. You cannot say, no, no, I don't want to see that. You must return that item to me. American law, any lawyers over here? Lawyer. In American law, you see a wall on the street. Do you have to pick up and return to someone or could just walk on by and you don't care? Walk on by. Exactly right. <laughs> walk on by, as Dion Warwick once said, right? Walk on by. You have no obligation of returning it. If you pick it up and you find it that it's mine, then perhaps the law might say you must do something to get it back to me. But he's allowed to walk on by and not return it. Halakha is saying something much more significant. Now, question. Why must he return that, uh, that wallet or that cow to me? Because by walking on by, you're saying that I don't really count. He's feeling in his heart of hearts the sense, the compassion, that I lost my wallet. 
MasterCard, Visa. What else do I have? I'm a rabbi, not too much green, but I do fine, no problem. I'm not worried. So I have that feeling of pain that he's concerned about. Because he loves me as himself, and he knows he would feel if he lost his wealth, he's going to return that wealth because it's really beyond that. It's just respect for another individual is characteristic of this halacha as well. Now, let's look at it from another perspective. Just two other contexts. A person commits a capital crime. He murders somebody. He was warned. He was told this is inappropriate behavior for a human being to do. And he kills. He rapes. And therefore, Bedin must sit in judgment. We have 23 judges, and they actually come to the Psaq Halakha that he deserves to be capitally punished. Must kill this person. And now we have to choose a way for him to die. This man must die. Something terrible. Whatever he did, must die. Gemara teaches us in Masechet Sanhedrin, Behar lo mita yafa. Choose for that murderer, that rapist, that horrible human being, a mita yafa. What does mita yafa mean? Some kind of pleasant and easier death. Very good. Because you have to love him as yourself. He's a human being. Though he committed a capital crime, he is still considered to be a Tzalim and therefore yafa. He shouldn't suffer in his death. And of course, as we know that a criminal who was to be capitally punished still in all was given some kind of herbal mixture which deadened the pain. So he wouldn't feel pain. So even a man who is a criminal and has committed a horrifying capital crime, still no bahar lo mita yafa. He shouldn't suffer in his death, though a criminal. And of course, we all know the halakha in the same context. Lo talin nivlato. That's something terrible. Cursed God, let's say. Cursed God. One of the categories that this applies to. And he must, or did avadazara, idolatry, and he's hung. First he's hung. And then we have to let him hung, hang. And the question would be, why? Well, I might say, because a man that's committed such a horrifying crime as idolatry or cursing God can, is neither beloved from above or below. He's hung. Perhaps that's the reason why. He's already dead. He's already been capitally punished. We must hang him. However, Torah tells you over here, Lo talin don't allow that man to, to be hung for any period of time. Rather, do it right before sunset, the rabbis teach, and then take him down right away. And of course, the very famous Rashi quoting the Gemara on that statement, is one that we don't have time to go into right now, but it also reflects the notion of Tzalem Elohim. That man, though committing a horrifying transgression, still in all is Tzalem Elohim, is a divine image, and therefore we can't let him lie because who's really hanging over there? An image of God! He's an image of God, and therefore we can't allow him to be hung for any period of time. All of these halachot, and of course there are many other halachot of this type, show us a dimension of halacha in Torah, in Torah legislation, that Tzalem or Kavod HaBeriot is an essential critical factor in these halachot. Now all that we've said so far is fairly obvious. I think there's no great Chidoshim in anything that I've said up to this point. Let's go now to another category or another category of halacha which I think is a bit more interesting. What happens in halacha and Jewish law when you have two core values contradicting? This is a fascinating area of Jewish law or halacha. What does one do when two halachot contradict or two core values contradict? Let me begin by giving a very simple, easy illustration. We all know of the mitzvah, one has an absolute obligation of respecting one's parents. 
And when one studies the halachot, the places about these halachot, you're awestruck to what degree and how much power these halachot actually have. Of kibbutz avayim. What's as an absolute? Let's take a simple case where mitzvah dirabanan. Give me any example of mitzvah dirabanan. The rabbi said it before, Purim's coming up, so we'll say Purim. Megillat Esther, Mitzvah de Rabbanan. We all agree, Mitzvah de Rabbanan, don't anybody dare here call Mitzvah de Oraita, as some post-scheme of the 9th century did, the Bahag, called Mitzvah de Rabbanan, we all know that, rabbinic law. So you're the rabbi in the shul, and you read the Megillah, and you're about to begin. You also get a phone call, you all have cell phones nowadays. I never carry mine around, except when I'm at a conference, so I don't want to be called. And what happens? Phone call, your mother calls. I'd like a cup of water. Ma, there's 400 people over here. I can't get order right now. Excuse me. Kibbutz Avayim, son. You're around Kibbutz Avayim. Mitzvah de Oraita pushes away Mitzvah de Rabbanan. Isn't there anybody else around to get you a cup of water? I want a glass of water that you bring. You bring a certain sweetness to the water. I'm an only son, so yeah, I understand what she means by that. So here we have Mitzvah de Oraita of Kibbutz Avayim, Mitzvah de Rabbanan of Mikra Megillah. What does one do in that particular context? Two halachot that are contradicting each other. Let's take another example. We all know that if God forbid somebody passes away, the child is obligated to say Kaddish. We all know that. Kaddish, of course, is a very powerful prayer, something that is important that one says. But one has to ask the question, is Kaddish Mitzvah de Oraita or Mitzvah de Rabbanan? We all know it's Mitzvah de Rabbanan. All the Chot of Avelut, all you have is Onen, which is the first day of mourning, which is Mitzvah de Oraita. Everything else is rabbinically established, Mitzvah de Rabbanan. But yet very important. We go to far lengths to find a minyan to say Kaddish. It's an obligation that we have to do. Let's say the surviving spouse tells the child, I don't want you saying Kaddish. Absolutely against my will that you will say Kaddish for the spouse who passed away. Whatever the reason may be. Here we have Kibbutz Avayim of the surviving spouse to follow what that person says on the one hand. On the other hand, this not only emotional, but you have a Svadir to say this. What does one do? Kibbutz Avayim or do you do the and violate the Rabbanan? Yeah? It's not really a sin over here. I'm just not saying Kaddish. The interesting answer to that question, I'm not going to it right now, is that Sfaradim and Ashkenazim argue about this issue. There are many areas of halakha that Sfaradim and Ashkenazim argue, which is interesting sociologically as to which value in halakha took precedence. In the case, the Sephardic poskim would say, say Kaddish, and the Ashkenazic poskim say you don't have to say Kaddish, and listen to the advice of the surviving spouse. Although I don't want to get into that right now, that could be elaborated upon, and it's interesting a question as to why Sephardim say one rather than the other. It might have mystical connotations to it, but not for us right now. So again, here you have two mitzvot, that are clashing, and one has to choose one rather than the other. All of this really serves actually as a backdrop to two teshuvot that I recently came across that I, was, that I was fascinated by, that I want to go over with you. I did want to bring them and go over them, but I don't think we have the time to go over them line by line. So I'll just summarize and describe what each case was about. This first teshuvah comes from Muhammad Vodya Yosef. Muhammad Vodya Yosef, of course, was the chief rabbi of Israel, a universally respected tamid hacham of awesome proportions. Many in the Ashkenazic world respect him as well, as well as in the Sephardic world. <coughs> extraordinary personality, extraordinary mind. He was addressed with the following question. A woman from B'nai Barak comes to him and says, I'm a Ba'alat Teshuvah. This is in Helek Zayn of Yabi'a Omer. Helek Zayn Yabi'a Omer. I think it's, uh, I 
forget what Siman it is. I am a woman from B'nai Barak. I lived a loose life prior to becoming a Ba'alat Teshuvah. A loose life. What does that mean? I was impregnated. I was pregnant. And my boyfriend made me get an abortion. However, since then I've seen the light. I am now a wonderful, righteous woman. And I married a very religious man living in B'nai Barak. And he doesn't know anything about my past life. So I didn't tell him, was not tell him, I didn't tell him. However, now I'm pregnant with his first child, and, well, actually, I had a boy. I'm just going ahead. She had a boy, so exactly that. Now I have the mitzvah for Jod Ben. My husband is extraordinarily excited. It's not a berachah that everybody could say. Jod Ben. But I'm very serious about my religion, and therefore, what is the consequences of him saying the berachah? Anybody hear Jod Ben? When do we say Jod Ben? When it's the first womb, Peterahem. This is not my Peter Rehem. Either way, she has no Pajana Ben, correct. Correct. No, but no, no, now it's, now it's a boy. Right, so now it's a boy. So the problem over here is Berchale Vatala versus what? Mitzvah Pajana Ben is a side issue. Versus what? We have a conflict of Berchale Vatala versus what's, sorry? Shalom Bayit. Shalom Bayit or Chamavad Yaz Dignity, the dignity of her as a woman. Which means, what's going to happen when a husband finds out that she was a loose woman before? So Chavadiyah enters into a long discussion, and those who read his Teshuvot, and one should, and Yabiyah Omer, it's a long discussion about all elements. All elements involved in the, halach, in the halacha. I'm sorry? He didn't, he didn't suspect, and then that was not part of the She'elah. So I'm only referring to what the She'elah itself was. She might have not been able to have some other reason that is biologically possible, or maybe someone, of an, maybe it was a naive yeshiva student, doesn't know the birds and the bees as you do, and I don't, so that could be the case. Other ways that one could explain why that might have been the case, why she's not a bit too loud. But all right, not for us right now. So now we have an interesting, interesting question. Rahman would you then discuss the question, what's the status, this is the first way you approach it, what's the status of this beracha? What's the status of Berachah Levatala? Is it Deorai or Deravanan? Not to go into details right now. Chavod at the end of this Teshuvah decides that Kavod Beriot is greater, is more important, and therefore she should not tell her husband of her past life and let him say the Berachah for Jodha Ben. I think that's an earth-shaking conclusion. Now remember, Chavod is not your, excuse me for saying so, why are you left of center rabbi? I don't know if that's rabbi. Sorry? Say that, right. Chavod is not. At all. He's an extraordinary posek. And I was shocked at his conclusion in that teshuvah, although it was my fault for being shocked. Chamavad Yah saw that as very clear. Kavod Beriot is great. Now, of course, he made reference. Where this issue is fleshed out. This issue is discussed in great detail as to when is Kavod Beriot applicable, the Oraita, the Rabbanan, etc. But over here, Chamavad Yah had to, number one, consider the meant to be a of this and then he went and said, Kavod HaBeriot is great, and therefore I'm going to push it aside, therefore let's say, Pijot HaBen. And let's say the Beracha of Pijot HaBen. Furthermore, another interesting case, Chalim HaVadja as well, I believe it's Yabi Aumar, I think it's Helek Dal Raheh, don't recall exactly which. The one you just said, Helek 10. Is it Helek? Okay. Thank you. Barilan? Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Find the next one. This, this one might be Zayn. This one might be Zayn. Well, again, again, it's, it's, it's Yabi Helek Het. What's Siman? Lamed Bet. So whoever wants to look it up should do so. 
Next one. Yeah, I'm sorry. I think he makes reference to both of those variables. Both of those variables. And by the way, it's good that you're with us today. Because <laughs> one should actually do a search, which I did months ago when I first prepared this, about where Kavod Yod plays a role in Halakha, which is really my core question. So here's another question. There's another interesting one. There's five others that if we have the time to go through. With Mishmatir was the El, who was a contemporary Pusak of Israel, about women's issues and the right to vote. Mishmatir was the El has one. And also with regard to medical students studying in Israel and having to do anatomy on Jewish bodies, which is what it's all about. If Cook was against it, and Mishmatir was the El was for it, interesting issue. Also related to Kavod Abediot. We'll get back to that later on. Next, wait, one second. I don't know her, not, not from my community. <laughs> and she wasn't Spartan either, she was Ashkenazi. Easy for you to say. It's her marriage on the line. I think she might have known her husband. And she really went to Chambavajah with this question, and she may have given them some of those details, that he's a yeshiva bachur type of person, and that if he finds out about this, my marriage is over, and I'm de-dignified, uh, let me go on, and, and we'll come back to this point. I think she felt that he was not as loving and caring and forgiving as you are, and therefore she wasn't willing to risk it. The next question, let's find out exactly where it is, is about a man has an affair with a woman. Chambodja has a lot of these racy kinds of teshuvot. And this man does teshuvah, he's about teshuvah, and he's really broken by halakha. I would not, as nobody here, would question the sincerity of this man's teshuvah. He goes to Chambodja and he knows the halakha, that if one has an affair with a woman, it's called adultery, and asuli ba'ala and asuli ba'ala, this woman is then forbidden to be with her husband and to be with the man who had relations with her, correct? The Talmud says, Asul ba'ala, to her husband, Asul ba'ala, to the man who had relations with her. She's forbidden to both. One parenthetical statement over here might be, is that if God bet you, if women were raped, the halakha has to deal with that issue also. Would the halakha then say that she has to leave her husband? There's a great teshuvah on that in what's known as Magen Ba'adi by Acham Abadi from our community on that exact topic. What does one do in that particular case? But let's leave that aside for now. So this man had an affair willingly with this wonderful woman, another loose woman in Israel, and he's about to shuvah. So his issue is what? What does he want to do now? He wants to go and tell the husband that you're not to live with your wife, because every time you live with your wife, you're going to be violating a halakha. Don't sleep with your wife. Every time you sleep with your wife, you're going to violate a It's my fault, but you're doing the sin. I don't want you to do this. So he feels a great deal of regret and sin sincere regret. What do I do? Ha, to ask Chama Vajaya Yosef. It's not his business. Chama <laughs> or the or the or the uh, the re, the adulterer. About Shuvah has no business interfering with his marriage. Is that a legal answer or a halakhic answer? It's my answer. answer. Okay, thank you. Valentine, <laughs> <laughs> he's a lawyer, so you're on record with that. So it's, it's certainly a very good question, and again, it's a fascinating Shuvah to go through. Pages and pages and pages. Chama Vajaya is extraordinary as a posek. And you go through all this, and again, the context of the Gemaran Berachot is that, let's say somebody's wearing Sha'anez, right? Wearing Sha'anez, and you know that he bought his Brooks Brothers suit Sha'anez, and he didn't check it, you rip it off. Kavod Aberiot. It's Kavod Aberiot. Publicly, there'll be no clothes on, 
right? Rabbi, no clothes, terrible situation. Gemara deals with that issue. Gemara deals with that issue. Do you rip it off? Don't you rip it off? What are the, what's the context? Interesting halacha. Then all Gemara talks about that issue, and the Chambodiah quotes it in that context. And over here, he tells the husband, as our lawyer said, you should not interfere with the marriage, shalom bayit. Let them stay married, otherwise it's going to be a divorce, otherwise she can't sleep with them any longer. So again, kavod beriot of the wife, of the people involved, is more important than the halacha of living with a woman who would sleep with some other man. So you're right. Although Chavodiah does say in that particular context, he should try to find an opportunity of hinting at it to this husband because he, Hamudia is concerned about the status of sleeping with this woman who had relations with another man. So he says if you find an opportunity, try to mention it to the husband in that some context or other. He ends on that statement and it'd be nice if he gets a full resolution of this issue. He's more dead. He's saying I did it. He's saying I did it myself. He knows. Okay, whatever the case may be. One last point. One last point, please. Okay. Let's look beyond these two examples. Let's say you're a rabbi in a synagogue, as some of us are. And I had this experience where a woman comes to me, and she comes from a very, very, very religious right-wing background. Very right-wing background. And she lost all of her religion because the parents cannot deal with her advanced education, etc., etc. Okay. And then she meets a completely non-religious person, completely non-religious person, and they want to get married. So why'd you come to me? I'm in Deal, New Jersey. Who knows about Deal, New Jersey? Nobody. Why'd you come to me? Well, we went to a class by a particular rabbi in the city, and he is modern orthodox, and we love the class because she found that she could be modern orthodox. And this non-religious person who hadn't been to shul for 15 years says, I could also, I like what he said about Shabbat, so we could work it out perhaps. So they asked the rabbi, gave the lecture, who's modern orthodox in the Jersey Shore? He knew me, he's a good friend of mine, so they came to me. I, of course, wouldn't marry them. Why not? Look, you don't know what he's all about. He eats uh, pig's fat all day long, and well, you know, he's, he doesn't know what kind of background you come from. So, I have to, so we had class about a year, year and a half, until I felt comfortable that he understood her values, where she's coming from, and she understood his values, where he's coming from. Okay, so at the end of a year, year and a half, I started it's appropriate to marry them. It comes from a very, very, very from right-wing house, right? She calls me about a day or two before the wedding, crying hysterically. What's the problem? She says, well, my father's Rebbe is going to write the Ketubah. I was doing one of them, he's doing to write the Ketubah. And what's the problem? She's no longer a Betula. She's not a virgin. Is this getting across? Mm-hmm. Do you know why? I mean, obviously. Yeah. What? Yes, exactly. So she, her brother is a yeshiva guy learning someplace, and he said, you can't write some Ketubah. She was, she'd be mortified, as would the father be mortified. A terrible story. So now the question is, what should we do? And here again, I would say the Kavod Beriot, and this is the Psak Halacha, it's a Pashut Psak Halacha, that Kavod Beriot over here, notwithstanding that she's testifying and saying that I did this and this act, it's clear that one would write a normal Ketubah for her, notwithstanding whatever he or she said, and that would be the end of the story. Because Kavod Beriot is a very strong factor in Halachic literature. We had shown some clear biblical statements where Kavod Beriot and play a role, and I'm going to just end with one question. Would one say that, in fact, even Arba Shomrim or Shoshinagah really all have an underlying core of basic Jewish values? That is, although that we had given very clear examples where Kavod Abed Yod play a role in a biblical law, 
and certainly in other cases that Hamal Wajah dealt with, would we not say that perhaps that whatever halakha ben adam lahabiro that we point to, that too really is an expression of a core Jewish value. I would like to argue that in fact every halakha has that core Jewish value and that when we are poseka halakha we want to make sure that we know all of these variables in order to make sure that we come to the right conclusion. Thank you. Question? Uh, this, is, oh, this is not what I was going to ask before but I'll ask it now. Um, okay. To put the two talks together perhaps. <laughs> um, I'm not responsible for that. That's uh, it's for both rabbis, I guess. Okay. Um, if we say that kavod habriot can be docha at least the rabbanans, and we say that women really have a hard time with shalos aniisha, and that creates problems in all sorts of worlds. So wouldn't it be then logical to say, well, either don't say the bracha at all, or take it out of sidurim, or go back to shasani Israel? What, would you be able to apply it in this situation? Rabbi, <laughs> moderator, no. <laughs> yeah, I think the answer is twofold. We have to be careful about Kavod as a relativizing agent, which means we, we're not going to take every halakha, my first thought, and say that because a woman feels upset about this particular halakha, though one may be upset about it, and therefore change an 800-year-old tradition, on the one hand. On the other hand, it does take the poskim, the Gedulei Hador, to in fact come to that conclusion. If the Gedulei Hador had come to that conclusion, they said this Kavod issue, and enough women really feel this way about it, something that we should take seriously, and notwithstanding the historical analysis that the rabbi had given, then I would certainly support that. It wouldn't be for me to do it. A, good, a better question might be if a woman comes to me individually and says, Rabbi, what do I do with this barakah that I cannot say? As opposed to a broader statement, which I wouldn't be comfortable making at all, a person who comes to me individually, and you have to look at all the factors that are involved, including her religious development and including and development and everything else like that and okay and yeah in fact a posik may come to that individualized conclusion but for or take it out of the sidur and to overturn those 800 years of jewish history that the rabbi was talking about before i think you need a gadol hador to do that to do that yes okay any other questions yes. please please come up to that. <coughs> are there are there examples of rabbi using this concept for the aguna issue um, in a more systemic way, as opposed to a um, specific person-to-person, and or are there examples of that on a um, personal level? Uh, first question I got, second question was on yeah, personal no, level, Aguna? No, in other words, obviously in this response, you're dealing with individual situations. Uh, right. <coughs> Very on, the Aguna, uh, on the Aguna issue, are there are individual examples in response to literature on that, and or is there also a systemic um, solution related to this concept? Good. First answer would be, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you should obviously ask Rabbi Rackman that question because he's dealt m- with most of the work on Aguna issues and or you could ask our friend, your name sorry is Noah, Noah about that. That's a good idea. He should type in Aguna and go through all the Teshuvot on Aguna and see whether or not that was <coughs> relevant. So I have not done that work. I have not gone through all the Teshuvot on Aguna to come to any conclusion in terms of whether or not Kavod does in fact play a role in that particular halakhic category or issue. The only problem with that search is very often that will Correct. Good. That could be the case. Good. Uh, also, I'm, I plan doing it this summer on Mamzerut. I'm interested in Mamzer. And what are the parameters of halakha and Mamzer? Whether or not that plays a role or not plays a role. So, there, one, certainly you have a good field for research to find an auto vote and see where this term really applies halakha. 
What I said in the very beginning is very true. It's a work in progress. To what degree does Kavod HaBariyot play a role in other issues? Chavod gave us two fantastic examples of this. But again, we want to go through many, many, many more before coming to a precise formulation as to the role and weight that one would give to Kavod HaBariyot in terms of these issues. There's a very interesting Teshuvah. I'm sorry, are you waiting for one second? I can wait forever. Okay, thank you. No, not forever. I don't have that much time here. You have to get back. It's a deal. Tunumat Adeshin has an interesting Teshuvah that Chavod quotes also. You're a Kohen. And you're sleeping in a tent, and you're not you're sleeping without any clothes on, right? And all of a sudden, somebody passes away in the tent, right? Now, what happens if I say, Mr. Cohen, wake up, get out of that tent? What happens? He runs out, and he is unclothed. Kavodabiriot issue. It's undignified to run out without any clothes on. So, therefore, in that case, the Tirumotadish, which is a very famous Rishon, makes the point that in that case, no, just tell him. Joe, it's time to get up, get, get your clothes on, and then wait till he gets out before you tell him anything. The issue that you're raising, and the issue of Kodavidut, is a very subtle one, it's a very complex one, as Chavodiyat Teshuvah indicates, and one has to do a lot more work on it, both biblically, which is why I started with many biblical examples, as well as Talmudically, as well as throughout the Shudot literature, to come to a very careful formulation, and to know exactly where you're going to apply it and where not. Would one apply to Shalos Anisha or not? Or Shalakis or not? Something has to be worked out. This implication, his implication of this whole Shi'ur has not yet been done. So that's his job. I just wanted to add, since I do serve with Rabbi Rachman on his faith team, that oh, that okay. is one of the right. underlying philosophies. It was uh, interesting that Rabbi Berman, in his uh, major address yesterday, uh, made mention of the fact that at least Rabbi Rachman is trying to deal with it. And one of the areas is Kavod Abriot, but it's just the beginning, and uh, you know, it's a terrific presentation as to giving us much more uh, to think about. Yeah, oh, I, I was interested in that last example you gave about um, what the rabbi was going to put on the um, ketubah in a case of a woman who is marrying for the first time and is not a virgin, so that he does not embarrass her in front of the entire congregation sure. when the ketubah is read. Sparadim don't read it, by the way. What? Sparadim don't read it. Oh, well, in, in my tradition, it is read very often. And I know what my rabbi does. Um, I don't Mom, know if it's a luck. Huh? He mumbles? No. Good. He asks, when he's getting ready to write the ketubah, he asks, the, he assumes the virtue of every Jewish woman. Me too. And he asks the woman, have you been married before? If she says she has not been married before, he writes it as though she were a virgin. And Though he knows for a fact. Oh, no, I don't think <laughs> that that's I don't the know. Issue. Yeah, I was very troubled, and I agree. Of course, the rabbi is right. Your rabbi is right. That rabbis always will assume that, and none of us are ever going to write the alternative. Right. The only problem I had in this situation was because she had told me, right, and I really wrote a, a line. I mean, yeah. the rabbi was writing a lie. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, so, I don't know about that situation. So that's. Yeah. You know, so, that, so now I understand your example uh, better. Yeah. What happened in yours? What I think we wrote that it was appropriate. We wrote that she was appropriate. Appropriate. Yeah, sure. Because we didn't have proof the rabbi was right, no two witnesses. Maybe she knew what was happening. Maybe, maybe she doesn't know what sex is all about. So yeah. she thought it was. It wasn't. You can do all kinds of things with halacha if you. Well, you don't want to embarrass her. And I, uh, all this together. When I said it. so, in my case, it was a clear cut of what she said. You know, she was very upset. She said, I wonder what's right, but I don't want to embarrass my father. My it was a mess. It was difficult. So we did it. I just, uh, it's just, um, I'm sorry. He's older. <laughs> 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 I 
Okay, so again, in terms of the mamzer, I would want to first do all the tashuot tashuot on the mamzer case before coming to any conclusions about what I was going to announce. So, of course, my first thought would be that you're right, that you announced the mamzer, and that's it. Too bad on him. But on the other hand, if we could find Teshuvot that does not come to that conclusion, then of course we'd have basis to not do that. So we'll have to see if the study of the Anyan. Sorry. I just wanted to ask um, Rabbi Green, what are the three brachot you only make once in a lifetime? I haven't uh, asked the one who asked me the question, give me the answer. Oh, I thought you got it. Uh, <laughs> one of them is in your poda yourself. Poda yourself, Charles. Yeah. From Pinyon Ben. Pinyon Ben. There may be more than three, you know. Um, with that, I think uh, we've run out of time, so I invite everyone upstairs. <laughs> Thank you very much, rabbis. And uh, upstairs for lunch, and upstairs in the main ballroom.